0: Hey there, welcome to the sixth episode of the third season of Science and Society. I'm Drew, a med student and functional fitness enthusiast.
1: And I'm Liv, a retired beauty queen working on a biochemistry PhD. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life.
0: Today, we're chatting with Dr. Benjamin Oakes, co-founder and CEO of Scribe Therapeutics.
1: At Scribe, Dr. Oaks is revolutionizing the already revolutionary capabilities of CRISPR. Keep listening to find out exactly how he's doing it.
0: Let's get after it. Benjamin L. Oaks is the co-founder, president, and chief executive officer at Scribe Therapeutics, a molecular engineering company focused on creating best-in-class, in-vivo therapies that permanently treat the underlying cause of disease. Ben has contributed to over 25 publications and patent applications on topics including synthetic biology, molecular engineering, CRISPR, and zinc finger genetic modification. Previously, as an Innovative Genomics Institute Entrepreneurial Fellow, he focused on the holistic engineering of genome editing technologies to build novel genome editing molecules. Ben received a PhD in molecular and cellular biology from UC Berkeley in 2017, where he worked in the Doudna Lab and Savage Lab, developing CRISPR-Cas9 molecules with enhanced characteristics. Ben, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on.
1: So we're going to get down to the very, very basic start. So from a fundamental standpoint, what is CRISPR and what does it actually do?
2: Uh, Good question. It's a really important question too. CRISPR is at its core a bacterial immune system that we have co-opted as essentially genetic scissors. So what that allows us to do is really target any location in the human genome and do so with high efficiency, high fidelity, and actually modify that. What CRISPR actually does is create a double-stranded DNA break. And that is something that the cell repairs into essentially a genetic modification. So CRISPR was discovered back in 2012 by Jennifer Doudna and colleagues. And I think while by no means the start of the genome editing revolution really kicked the entire process into light speed. So I actually personally started out working with a previous generation of technology called zinc finger nucleases. And I think, you know, what is so exciting about CRISPR is that compared to the technologies like zinc finger nucleases, where we would have to engineer billions of different molecules and pick and find one that I could actually honestly find one that targets three base pairs of DNA. And then you have to hook it up to another that binds three base pairs, and then a third that binds three base pairs. And then you have nine base pairs of specificity, which in the human genome is only half of what you need to get specificity to any location. Um, so you can imagine that, right? I just talked about three different selections that are a billion molecules each, um, and then you have to do that again to even potentially get one thing that could bind a location in the human genome. And then all of a sudden, Jennifer comes along with Martin and Manuel and a really a fantastic group of folks and shows the world how we can co-opt a bacterial immune system that's often used to fight off invading nucleic acids, like viruses, prevent bacteria from getting sick essentially. And we can use that with a one-to-one code where essentially we can program an RNA molecule to target DNA and all of the work that I've been doing on zinc fingers, all the work that many others have been doing on zinc fingers becomes, you know, that, and hours and hours of that work, you know, weeks, months to even get a single zinc finger comes down to 15 minutes on a computer.
1: So as someone who kind of started working on this work relatively early on, what has been a development in the CRISPR space that has been particularly exciting to you? Because like you said, I mean, you went from, you know, this these zinc finger nucleases, which was like a very rudimentary, it sounds like, kind of version of what CRISPR is now, and you've really seen the whole development from, from that to what CRISPR is and can be today, what has that process looked like, kind of from a bird's eye view, and what has been something that has been really cool for you to see as a scientist?
2: Yeah, so I, I will say props to the zinc finger engineering folks, not rudimentary at all. Um, <laughs> that was complicated. That stuff's incredibly complicated. Um, but even in that complexity, it became, it becomes really difficult to always get what you want out of it for me. And I'll, you know, once again, I have to come from, from my perspective, what is so exciting or what has been so exciting about really the CRISPR genome editing landscape is that you have a really interesting, you had a really interesting set of folks, uh, like myself who came from this background of molecular engineering, high throughput molecular engineering. How do we screen billions of different molecules and understand how they work best? And we were focused on the problem of specifying DNA, specifying a single target site, right? How do we f- create that control F, control find, that find function in the word processor? Um, and all of a sudden that was solved like that, right? All of that energy, all of that you know, passion that we had for building new tools could now get, a- get applied to many different things all based around that same idea that we could specify DNA with an RNA. So over the past decade now, thereabouts, you know, I, myself, and many others in the field have built and engineered so many different ways of utilizing this technology that go above and beyond genome editing. Um, So many ways of modulating genome editors to build in new control mechanisms. So like, once again, to just talk about kind of what I did during grad school, we focused on, Exploring all of the different ways you could essentially holistically rearrange uh, CRISPR Cas9 or that first generation of CRISPR molecules. And in doing so, we uncovered ways that allowed us to essentially tap into the allosteric networks, um, which is essentially a control network within this protein, to actually make them responsive to what goes on in a cell. So, for example, we can make a CRISPR molecule that could respond to the presence of a drug. And actually, you know, we used a, a drug molecule that is uh, that has been in the past approved for breast cancer. And you could turn on genome editing when you added this uh, molecule to the cell, creating essentially a switch for genome editing, right? Being able to give you basically temporal control over when you edit something. And so this is just a, a, a simple example, actually, of many of the different ways people have started to build onto CRISPR, right? We now have CRISPR molecules that are that control fine function, but instead of creating a double-stranded DNA break in, in the genome, we can modify single nucleotides with, with base editing technology, or we can actually modify something that's known as the epigenome, which is the marks that control whether or not genes are expressed or controlled. Um, and this is all because we freed up essentially all of that creative, you know, that creative energy. That passion that was focused on, you know, building molecules that had to target a specific location, um, and I think that's the most exciting thing about CRISPR is it it allows for so much greater creativity now.
0: This this sounds like you've created the wheel, or like fire, or like something just so fundamental. Yeah, like fundamental to a process and to a field and to a, 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 like a discovery pathway and the way you're describing like modulating crispr turning it on and off and it just it that, that we sat here like for those listening you won't be able to like see our expressions but Liv and I sat here just like aghast like w- what no way <laughs> um but so you you know you're you're starting to talk about these these different ways that you looked at using crispr in grad school since starting scribe in I guess, today, what does Scribe do to use CRISPR technology? Like, how, how, do you, how do you use it now?
2: Yeah, so I'll give you a little bit of background on, on Scribe and, and basically why we created it as well. Actually, and I'll add one more thing first, which is that when you, when you compare CRISPR to the wheel, I, you know, the wheel's pretty groundbreaking. I, I don't know if that's the right metaphor there. But like at the same time, if we think about you know, the arc of human history and not to, you know, wax poetic here. But when folks look back at this period in time and they talk about what happened, you know, when we look at this from a historical perspective, we can actually abstract that much. At least for me, you know, this, since, you know, this, the past decade, the past two decades, I think will only be described, people will be like, yeah, that was when humans figured out, like, how to modify the genome. Which is pretty crazy. Like no one's gonna be like, uh, no one's gonna be talking about Trump. No one's gonna be talking about Biden. No one's gonna be talking about, you know, whether or not Will Smith smacks someone at the Emmys or the Oscars or whatever award show that is. Right? History will will recognize this as the time period in which we actually gain control over the genome, which is pretty amazing and like I think can't be undersold. Now to get back to your question. Um, on, on what Scribe is and, and you know, what, what we are really focused on doing right now. Um, so I worked uh, with the first generation of CRISPR technology from 2013 uh, until about 2016, 2017 thereabouts. We made, as I mentioned, actually we discovered ways you can make that first generation molecule Cas9 bind to RNA rather than DNA, which is the messenger in the cell versus the hard, you know, the, the hard code. We generated allosteric versions, as I mentioned, of Cas9 that can sense and respond to small molecules. And then we generated versions of Cas9 that are actually topologically rearranged so that they can sense and respond to other proteins like viral invasion, for example. And that was all incredibly exciting, very cool. But when I was wrapping that up, we kind of took a step back and asked, what was it that the field really needed today? What was it that You know a lot of things I just talked about. I'm like, you know, yeah, 10 years, 20 years from now, I can already see how some of those are going to be really useful in in plant biology, for example. Um, But it's it's more really that's more synthetic biology, you know, to the max. The question becomes, how do we actually speed the advance and the applicability of CRISPR today? And we realized that there was a number of honestly deceptively simple, or I should say, deceptively complex characteristics that haven't yet really been built into a single platform in a holistic way. Um, and we founded Scribe to do that, to try to build a version of CRISPR technology that had been specifically engineered for exquisite therapeutic uses. The metaphor I, I like to use here uh, is a silly one, and you'll have to forgive me. But, you know, imagine going to the doctor, maybe you have stomach pain, you know, and they find out you have appendicitis and they roll you into the operating room and the surgeon turns around and is holding a sharp, a sharpened, very sharp, let's say rock. Right. And they're like, I just, I found this rock this morning. It's incredibly sharp. I've been working on it all morning. Um, let's get, let's get going. Let me, let's, let's start surgery. What are you going to do?
1: Run away. Run away.
2: Yeah, (laughs) most people are like, well, like, have I been, have I, have I gone under yet? Am I like just going under? Yeah, I'm going to roll out of there. I'm going to try to get, get away. And at the same time, that's not far from where we are with CRISPR technology, right? We've discovered it in the past 10 years and we've started to modify it, but those modifications are fairly simple, right? A a couple changes here or there, Um, which means that fundamentally CRISPR systems have evolved as I mentioned earlier. These bacterial immune systems—they've evolved to stop an invading nucleic acid, very often a virus, which is not a ge- you know a genome scalpel. It's not a genetic scalpel that we want. It doesn't have certain characteristics around specificity, or activity in human cells, or deliverability that are really important when we start to get to the critical therapeutic aspects of a specific disease. So long-winded way of saying at Scribe, what we set out to do was build an entirely new platform that we could and would continue to engineer for those specific therapeutic aspects.
1: So I did some digging on the company, of course, before we, we started this interview um, to not go in completely blind. And I was reading about something that Scribe does, or that has really, I mean, something that Scribe has developed really uh, called X-Editing or XE um, is how you, you coin it on the website. So like you mentioned, the goal of that was to improve CRISPR's activity, specificity, and deliverability. So without giving away too much because, you know, a magician never reveals all of his secrets, but can you sort of walk us through what that development process looks like and why those changes are actually important kind of like, how are you actually making those changes, right? Like what are you actually doing to this molecule that you can improve it so much without losing functionality? How are you kind of balancing all those aspects at once?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question. Um, And it's one that is complicated. um, But I will try to make it simple. (laughs) And I'm actually you'll have to forgive me because I'm making this one up on the spot. Um, But it's essentially it's a form of directed evolution, Um, but it is by no means just one form of directed evolution. And what I mean by that is we can essentially take a CRISPR molecule and in this case, the core molecule that we started out with was one called CasX. It was discovered by Jennifer and colleagues um, at UC Berkeley as well. And it had a number of really interesting inherent characteristics So namely it was significantly smaller than any other uh, CRISPR molecule to date. And that actually allows it to be delivered more efficiently. It also cuts DNA differently and that's really unique. It has a unique guide RNA and that's kind of fun, but that's more you know, biochemical. Um, I, won't, I won't get into the weeds there, but what we, started out doing was kind of taking a page out of the playbook that, you know, I developed in grad school and I actually also been working on during, you know, zinc-finger nucleus engineering was we would make every single change to this molecule, protein, guide RNA, um, actually even the delivery vectors as well. Uh, and then by building the correct screens or selections, which really means something that can apply an evolutionary pressure, we can explore what these changes do. And we can find changes that improve the enzyme. We can find changes that don't improve the enzyme. Um, and we can find changes that actually allow the enzyme to drift through what's known as sequence-based, uh, changing the sequence without actually changing the functionality. And this is all done by essentially applying a, a, a selective pressure on you know, with an understanding that that selective pressure is a certain variety. So this is a pressure for protein folding, or it's a pressure for cutting DNA. Um, this is a pressure for behaving well inside of the human cell, for example. Um, you know, once again, where these enzymes have never before seen human cells. So that's, that's what we've done uh, since day one. We've actually, at this point in time, taken over 100 steps through sequence space, over 100 changes to this enzyme compared to the original wild type enzyme. Um, and that has allowed us to build a system that we really believe has become much more specific than the wild-type enzyme. Uh, we, You know, much more active, especially at low doses, than the wild-type enzyme. Um, have greater stability, have actually a broader ability to target the genome, because um, there are some limitations for CRISPR proteins. And overall has given us a much better, you know, really foundation for doing therapeutic modi- modification kind of writ large with uh, the really highly evolved version of CASX, X, which we call the X Editing Platform or XE.
0: But, I mean, that's, that's a really cool development process, and the fact that you've already like a hundred steps. I to me, as somebody with like very very little bench background at all, I, I can't even begin to like kind of quantify and like internalize what a hundred changes mean. But from what Liv has told me about <laughs> the process of scientific discovery, that's, that's a hell of a lot.
2: <laughs> it is. And I, I think, I mean, the interesting thing about protein engineering, and like, look, I'm happy to geek out on uh, protein engineering and evolution any day, is that some of those changes alone don't do anything. But they un- allow you to unlock further changes that actually open up entirely new possibilities. Some of them are actually detrimental alone. But combined with others, they're actually synergistic, right? Or epistatic would be the turn of phrase um, for those PhDs out there. So it is really interesting. I think, you know, we take steps in through sequence space, space that are both large and small, right? We make every changes or we make a whole bunch of changes all at once. And we're continually improving this as well. Um, this is an iterative process for us, right? I think what I, what, I, what I like to think about what we do at Scribe is very much what humans have always been good at, right? We, we take Tiocente and we turn it into corn, right? We take that sharp rock and we realize we need to melt that down and smelt it into a scalpel. Um, and that is not an overnight thing, but overall, you're always better off in the long run.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so going off of that kind of rock to scalpel analogy, if you will, as this rock gets sharpened and molded into its final form, where do you see, whether it be medicine, research, both um, in plants, in, in literally any like sector of life, where do you hope Scribe will make the biggest impact? And like, how do you see that playing out?
2: So I'm going to split this one up, actually. I'm going to say CRISPR big impact and then Scribe big impact, because I think they're both really important. So we're just, let's start with CRISPR first. CRISPR, where is CRISPR going to make its biggest impact? And this is maybe a little bit counterintuitive, but my belief is that CRISPR's largest impact will actually not be necessarily, once again, in the arc of history, not the use of it in any any given, you know, small area, um, you know, modify this gene to treat that disease will be huge. But what CRISPR actually gives us as researchers now is the ability to perturb the genome in a defined way, which allows us to go from reading, you know, quote unquote, the book of life, the genome, to actually understanding it. And that switch is where CRISPR will be the most impactful. We now have the ability to perturb any single nucleotide in the genome. And without being able to do that, we didn't know what was going on. Now, all of a sudden, right, we've, the human, uh, human genome sequencing project is over 20 years old. We're just now starting to really be, up, be able to apply CRISPR in these really large screens to understand what genes do what, how they interact with each other, how their regulatory networks work, and that would have been impossible without a tool like this. And I think that knowledge, the ability to actually understand the genome, not just the human genome, but every genome, um, is what will be uh, you know, the lasting gift of CRISPR. Now, Once again, that's only because the individual aspects, right, each individual application of CRISPR is a unique and distinct thing that has implications for certain individuals, but not for the entire world. So for Scribe, though, we are focused on building out the very specific applications of CRISPR for therapeutic uses. And where we hope to have the largest impact is in vivo, uh, which means within the human body. Our goal is to essentially build tools and technologies that allow us to modify the genome um, in, within the human body in ways that really have been, we've been un, unable to do before, whether or not limited by efficacy or specificity, or even um, different ways of modifying the genome, right? The tools weren't built. On top of that, we are also really focused on the delivery question, which is another huge challenge for CRISPR in general. Um, really for gene therapy in general. And one of, the, one of the real limiting factors for in vivo use of any of these technologies. So I guess explicit diseases, you know, genetic and non-genetic, um, everything from you know cardiometabolic diseases all the way through neurodegenerative.
1: The, the first part, point that you made about CRISPR is actually something that I think is a lot easier to appreciate if you are a little bit closer to the field, unfortunately, but I'm glad you mentioned it because the, the average person might not appreciate how groundbreaking it is that you can go and, and you know, be so tactile really with the genome and, and to be able to be so um, like intentionally tactile with the genome. Like you, you as the researcher get to say exactly what you want this thing to go and, you know, go and do. And really, you know, more and more, it's become somewhat of a common thing for people to work with CRISPR. I know plenty of graduate students who aren't necessarily working on CRISPR or any sort of CRISPR technology, but are using it in their own research, Um, it's kind of become just a tool in the toolkit for a lot of people, which is really, really cool and really exciting because it's opened up the door for research in so many other spaces that people probably wouldn't have thought it would. You know, it just, it's so useful um, in a very fundamental way.
2: It works across every organism that people have tried it in, right? I think if you're familiar with biological research, there used to be, or rather there still is, but there's a whole field based on certain model organisms, you know, worms, flies, mice, and you try to understand the genome there because perturbing the genome in those organisms was doable. You know, I, I've heard that CRISPR, you know, I, the, the one of the really exciting things about CRISPR is that we may be moving to a post-model organism world where you can perturb the genome of any organism and therefore understand why, for example, butterflies' wing patterns look the way they do why you know some crustacean has more legs than others, right? And that was impossible before. And once again, it just gets to this point that the understanding of the genome would have been, you know, really impossible without the ability to break the genome. Um, right. Without the ability to actually change it and understand what those changes do. And that will be, I think, the legacy of CRISPR. Above and beyond any individual therapeutic that we can make, which of course will be hugely impactful, but like that is once again fundamental to how we think about biology.
1: Right, in a way, it'll it'll touch so many other spaces, and like you said, the the therapeutic potential is also extraordinarily exciting, and really, it kind of seems like the possibilities are almost endless. And that kind of leads me to my next question. Um, you know, when the possibilities are endless, when you hear gene editing and this sort of incredible tool that lets you, you know, cut into someone's DNA effectively. That comes with a lot of, you know, fantasies and rumors and crazy ideas about the horrible ways these things can be used. So what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions, um, you know, surrounding CRISPR and really gene editing more broadly?
2: So that's a great question. And the biggest misconception is that we know anything about the genome. And this is, I think, ties back to what I was just talking about, right? Everyone's like, you know, we immediately, people's minds immediately jump to some Gattaca future, right, where everyone's genome, we, we, can, we can know exactly, uh, you know, what level of work you're, your competence to do based on your genome. And, and while we certainly have to be incredibly vigilant um, and make sure that we do not ever go in that direction as a society, what we understand today about the genome is actually very, very minimal. Right? We understand uh, a small number of monogenic diseases, and we are just starting to, to to scratch the surface of understanding how to modify those diseases, or actually understanding even you know a bit more about com- you know more complex diseases. Right? So, if we if we talk about you know what are diseases that CRISPR is immediately applicable today, it's actually a fairly small number. And that's because our understanding of the genome is not great, not great enough to really understand how to modify it in many different ways. I would also say, you know, we are still significantly limited. And this is why we founded Scribe and why we're building what we're building by things like efficacy and specificity, the ability to modify the genome in more than one location. So even if we did know, um, for example, all of the genes that underpin certain metabolic disorders, could you actually go after them and target them? There's still limitations there. You know, we are incredibly good at using CRISPR to modify one location at a time. But more than that it starts to get a bit more complex. There sort to the additional challenges. Um, and then of course, one of the things that we don't talk about as much is that it is very, uh, you know, the base case for CRISPR, I, I would say. You know, the, the, the normal molecule itself, whether it's, you know, Cas9 um, or any of our, or any of the new molecules, is that it creates a double strand DNA break. And I mentioned this earlier. That double strand DNA break is repaired by the cell. And that repair is probabilistic. It is not, um, you know, it's, you have the control find key, but then essentially when you hit delete, you kind of get a random mishmash of what comes in. And that's actually, people don't realize that. You think, you, we think that it's, this is a cut and replace, this is a control. Um, you know, control finds, control replace situation, that is, there are technologies that are moving more in that direction. Um, And there are some technologies that are are fairly good at doing that for very specific nucleotides. But still, all of them have their challenges. And that is another huge limitation.
1: I'm actually uh, co-mentored by a um, professor at UChicago who does a lot of um, base editor work. And it's an extraordinarily um, like the field is at a very very basic point so far compared to CRISPR and compared to how um, again like how specific we can get CRISPR how you know the the, the knowledge base is so much smaller um, and you know you're talking about one nucleotide two nucleotides at a time so it's we're quite a ways away from being able to sort of just edit the genome I think the way a lot of people think we can
2: especially but, with the efficiency you need and the specificity right right I mean you might be able to get and this is the interesting, right, in a dish, we can do lots of things. You can get the one cell that has the perfect mutation and study that. But in the human body for therapeutics, it becomes more difficult. And we have to find ways to modulate disease that are robust to the variety of changes that you might make.
1: Absolutely. So it gives you a lot of interesting things and exciting things that you get to work on uh, throughout the course of your lifetime. And you know, as we kind of wrap up our interview about your work, I want to learn a little bit more about sort of why you're here. And that's a good way to segue into, you know, why, why the industry? Why work in the industry? Why work, you know, as the CEO of Scribe um, after coming from academia? What kind of pushed you in this direction?
2: That's a good question. It's one, one I think about a lot as well. Um, but I think it's, I guess, there's a couple reasons. First is that When I started out um, actually engineering zinc fingers, I was in a small lab uh, with a fellow by the name of Marcus Noyes at Princeton University. And he had a, literally, he was a fellow, he had a fellowship there. Um, And it was a small group of really highly dedicated people. Um, You know, there was really three of us. And we were pushing as hard as we possibly could on this, you know, like, let's do 10,000 selections of different zinc fingers and let's find all the zinc fingers that could possibly bind a a target site in human genome. and you know, that was uh, incredible, but it required so much effort that you had to convince yourself that this was really going to be worthwhile. Um, and I kind of caught the bug there, right? There was a, there was a couple moments that were a little bit uh, rough and it was either I went like, I was gonna go, nah, this is not for me. Or like, this is totally everything I wanna do. Um, and I went completely in that direction, right? It was like 90 hours a week, Ten, you know, ten thousand selections. We'll do it. Let's do it. It's possible. We can do it. We can bang our head against this wall hard enough. Um, and that really sent me down this path of enjoying, you know, what I guess some might describe as the entrepreneurial spirit. I would just say like a deep passion for for working with small groups of people um, and seeing what you can do together. Um, I, I, you know, I did something very similar during grad school. I, I, I always liked trying to build small teams. Um, and because of that, I will say, I always knew that there was gonna be two options. I was either going to start a lab or probably start an organization. Um, and you know, I don't know my mom and there's no one else in my family that is a doctor or a scientist or anything. Right. So probably you have some background from that saying, you know, maybe go do, go, go more in the business world. Um, But I think in the end, I mean, honestly, it was just obvious to look around and say, where are there more resources to accomplish our mission? And fundamentally this day and age, academic funding does not get you or for the majority of folks, right. Does not get you where you really want to be. You know, we have 60 folks here at Scribe, thereabouts now, um, all pulling towards this mission of building the very best genome editing tools to treat the underlying causes of disease or treat actually many different causes of disease. And that would have been very difficult to do in academia, if not impossible, but it's doable in biotech. Um, So there's like the brief version of it. If you want to talk about, more deeply. I'm happy to share a longer story, but not-
1: <laughs> No, it definitely, it definitely makes sense. And, you know, I'm actually, I'm amazed that you have 60 people on your team because you're right. That, that is almost unheard of um, in academia. I'm in a lab of, the other lab I'm in is a lab of, I believe, 40 total people and people refer to it as the company on campus because it's mm-hmm. just so unheard of to have an academic lab of that size. And certainly not as an early career, professor, unfortunately. Um, So thank you for sharing that. That's really exciting. Um, And sort of in this realm of your academic journey, obviously, you've worked with some pretty remarkable people. Um, So having co-founded Scribe together and being a graduate of her lab, how did it feel when you found out that Dr. Doudna was one of the women awarded uh, the Nobel Prize for CRISPR? What did that feel like? What was that whole experience like for you?
2: I mean... Does it matter what it was like for me? What it was it like for her? No, I Do mean, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it was obviously, um, you know, really wonderful. I don't think it was a question in anyone's mind whether or not it was going to happen. It was just a question of when, at least from my perspective, there's been so much accomplished off the back of this technology and there. It has so much more to give as we've talked about today. Um, it was really a no brainer. And I'm thrilled that the committee recognized Jennifer, but it's kind of like, you know, please. You know, <laughs> from my perspective, at least, of course, you must. You know, what I would say more about Jennifer is just how amazing and supportive a mentor she is. Um, you know, with with or without a Nobel Prize, I don't, you know, I don't think that that matters. It hasn't changed her at all. Um, she is just someone who's always there. In, in supporting whatever, you know, whatever you want to accomplish. And, and that's been a huge gift and Dave's very similar. So, I mean, that would you know, my advice for anyone who is looking into grad school is find the right people to work with um, even more so than the projects. Now I was fortunate enough to kind of know exactly what I wanted to do and find people who were good, but it, the people matter more than anything.
1: Yeah. You actually and- stole our last question. <laughs> so, um I, I I don't want to be like weird and fangirly at the end here, but I'm going to get weird and fangirly and kind of hop off the, you know, science boat here. I'm a huge fan of Jennifer Doudna. You can go ahead and tell her that, that like this random grad student from Chicago is a big, big fan. I think, I think yeah, I think everyone. Everyone. <laughs> everyone
0: should
2: be. Everyone should be,
1: yeah. Um, I think it's super cool. I mean, there's nothing wrong with men in science. I'm not going to go on the the woman in science train here sitting on an interview with two men in science because all people in science are necessary and all people in science do incredible things. But to have an incredible woman in science to kind of admire and look up to is super exciting for someone like me. So I also come from a family of no scientists or physicians. So um, sort of trailblazing that path uh, as the first is always a little crazy. So it's cool to have people um, that do such remarkable work. And it's nice to hear that she's been a great mentor. So I'm I'm happy for you to have experienced that and have to have worked through that with her and to have really seen like the birth of CRISPR really. Um, and now to be able to spearhead its development is pretty remarkable. So I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Um, as always, it was a phenomenal interview. I'll let Drew talk for a second here now I've like stolen the mic.
0: no no ben we just want to say thank you so much uh for taking the time to sit down with us it was really insightful Uh, i think our listeners are gonna garner a lot honestly from this uh from this interview and we wish you nothing but the best in your personal professional scribes life what have you
2: well thank you i would say you know once again if i can just plug my own team here not nothing that I've Certainly. talked about. Yeah, nothing that I've talked about is done me alone, as I mentioned just a second ago. Everything is about building the right teams of people to come together um, and really do incredible things.
0: Slam dunk, home run, slap across Chris Rock's face. <laughs> that was a heck
1: of an interview. It sure was. And you already know this about me, but our listeners might not know. I'm I really am a big Jennifer Doudna fan. So to speak to Ben and hear from him and his experience and how he's contributed to what is one of my favorite bodies of scientific work. Um, I'm I'm excited. I feel I feel really I just feel really lucky to be able to to learn from someone and to, to hear what they're doing and I mean, I'm just so enthralled by the capabilities of CRISPR and, and just like how remarkable of an example it is of what science can do. And I know that sounds really vague, but if you think about just how, how quickly one discovery changed, I mean, so many spaces within science and will continue to change so many spaces within science, to me, it's really just a testament and sort of like this this incredible example of how powerful the fields we work in are. Um, and I think that's, it's, it's such an honor to see that come to life and to see it come to life within our lifetime. So I have to agree with you. That was a slam dunk.
0: Yeah. And the way he described it being a turning point, a pivotal point in history and the way it'll be remembered, not just in the scientific community, but more broadly, I, I think that's a testament to just how groundbreaking this discovery was and We may not know it now, at least from a societal perspective. We certainly can see it from within science, but from a broader societal perspective, when we finally fully internalize and understand the breadth and depth of this discovery and how much it's going to change our lives, I think Ben's right. I think we will see this as a pivotal couple decades in in history.
1: I mean, I certainly hope that that's how this time of of human society is remembered. There's a lot of other things we could be remembered for that aren't quite so flattering. So I'm always going to be the one rooting for people to be remembered by the contributions they made to the people that come after them, you know, whether it be through science or through medicine or through engineering or through art or through music, you know, just to to have like this hallmark moment in a lifetime. I mean, it's, it's something like the discovery of electricity or, you know, the, the creation of jazz music, right? It's just like you, you, you kind of mark this era of, of life in that way. And I think, I think it's a really accurate kind of title for what has been the most revolutionary for this time in science, at least from my from my perspective, I think when I think about what science has really, really kind of taken by the reins and run with, it really has been gene editing and it's it's something that still has so much yet to be done and so so much yet to be worked on um and you know, maybe I have a bit of a selection bias here, but when I think about the work again, like I said, that excites me the most that I think has such an intense c- like capability for changing the course of human history really i definitely think gene editing is is up there so i was really thrilled to be able to talk to ben i'm thrilled for how much work he's put into this um, just how he's really taken such a pivotal moment in his graduate career and turned it into something even bigger than that um it's pretty inspiring i'm pretty pretty stoked about it i don't think my phd will be quite as exciting as ben's was but (laughs) you can't have them all
0: Uh, i'm At the very least, I am excited to see where Scribe goes and to see where it ends up because everything he was talking about, you know, kind of lit a fire under my butt a little bit. I'm like, wow, that's awesome.
1: It certainly is. But unfortunately, that is all for this week's episode. If you do want to learn more about Scribe Therapeutics, you can head to their website at www.scribetx.com or follow them on Twitter at ScribeTX. To keep up with Ben's future work, check out his Twitter at Benjamin L. Oaks.
0: You can follow us on Instagram at Science and Society to catch our new releases, upcoming topics, and our science shenanigans.
1: If you're enjoying our show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find science and society. We release a new show on the first Monday of every month, so Episode 7 is coming your way on May 2nd.
0: Peace, love, and as always, Science. science.